Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, back again with part three on behalf of everyone here at the Tea History Podcast. Welcome back. Last episode, we looked back on tea's most ancient origins in Chinese history. No one knows for sure who that first Chaoren was, or tea person, who lived where the tea trees grew indigenously between the Brahmaputra Valley in the west and Sichuan Province in the east. Who was that tea person who first recognized the delights yielded by these leaves and became its first apostle? Let me quote William Euchers, who put it so nicely, quote, The Chinese learned the use of the tea drink of the aboriginal tribesmen of the hill districts bordering on southwestern China. These tribesmen occasionally prepared a beverage by boiling raw, green leaves of wild tea trees and kettles over smoky, outdoor fires. This was the earliest, crude beginning of what the Chinese and Japanese later developed into a socio-religious rite of exquisite refinement. End quote. Until we know better, Shannong, the divine farmer mentioned in part one, is standing in for that person. But at least from the beginnings of recorded history, the Shang Dynasty, we know at least that tea was already around. It was bitter. It wasn't called cha. Its value was primarily as a medicine. If anyone drank it for pleasure, they sure hadn't popularized it yet. It was learned early on that steaming the leaves first before pounding them into cakes of tea not only improved the storage technology, but also made the tea a little less bitter. The old method of drying the leaves involved charring them, which left a bitter aftertaste in one's mouth. It took a long time to figure out even the crudest ways to work the freshly plucked leaves, But figure it out, they did, and as tea began to lose some of its edge, one began to see the possibilities of tea as a beverage. From several previous China History podcast episodes, you no doubt recall that so much of the Tang Dynasty was rooted in the achievements of the father-son team of Sui Wendi and Sui Yangdi. Their Sui Dynasty didn't last too long, 581 to 618, not even 40 years, but they got a lot done, including, most famously, the Grand Canal. They knew how to spend money, I'll give them that. Tea's transition from medicine to beverage began during the Sui. Right about here, the distance from the fall of the Sui Emperor Yang and the birth of Lu Yu was only 115 years. So the Sui is considered the transitionary period where tea, as we'd recognize it today, started to happen. The common way to drink tea back then was still to add stuff to it. Adding spices, fruits, plum juice, or ginger to the tea was one way to cut into the bitterness, or at least distract you from it. By the 7th century, the process of making tea had reached a point where not only did it win acceptance from the local people, it was also a massive hit with all the peoples who bordered China to the southwest in Tibet, and to the west in Central Asia, and to the north in Mongolia. Now, with a healthy demand being ramped up in these border regions and the Silk Roads already well-worn for at least eight centuries, tea started to become a very big business for some. This naturally put demands on quality, packaging, transport, and product differentiation. And to facilitate all this, a transport system also needed to be created. Remember CHP 111 on the Wu State, King Fuchai, late 5th century BCE, 
this king of Wu built the Han Canal, the Han Go, which connected the Huai and Yangtze rivers. It's quite a feat in its day. And when Emperor Yang of Sui expanded Fu Chai's Han Canal into the Grand Canal, stretching from all the way in Beijing to Hangzhou, this opened up the floodgates for domestic trade and commerce in China. And because the Grand Canal was an eastern China, technological and transportation marvel, the whole center of gravity for the tea trade shifted slowly eastward. The tea forests of southwest China started to become less important. Their role became more about satiating the markets of the border regions like Tibet and Central Asia, since tea for these people was more of a beverage than something to wax eloquent over with one's highbrow friends. Their demands on quality didn't do too much to spur innovation. It would be in the eastern provinces of Fujian, Zhejiang, Anhui, and Jiangxi where things were brought to a high art. After the Jin dynasty fell in 420, many of these northern aristocrats ended up migrating en masse in a southerly direction and began settling down in all the choicest areas of Jiangsu and Zhejiang. And in the case of the Hakka people, well, they ended up in eastern Guangdong and western Fujian. It was only natural that these places would become so prominent and would so wholeheartedly embrace tea. And no offense to northern China, but the south of China, south of the Yangtze River, that's where all the gorgeous landscape-painting-worthy places were located. It's no wonder that it was during this age that Chinese landscape painting as we know it today was born. Jiangsu, Zhejiang, parts of Anhui and Fujian, those places were simply too intoxicating to the elites, artists, and scholars of the day. And as it turned out, there were lots of shaded, hilly places in the east of China with excellent soil drainage and the right temperatures and climate. So although they continued to grow and produce tea in Sichuan, Guizhou, and Yunnan to this very day, later on we'll see it will be the teas coming out of the eastern provinces that would shake the world and give pleasures and inspiration to who knows how many tea connoisseurs. For the first 2,000 years, we really had to glean through the historical record to understand some of the most basic things about tea and about how far its development had come. Now, in the Tang Dynasty, so many things will happen so quickly, especially after Tang Taizong, the dynasty co-founder, pacified the western borders and brought the Silk Road to even greater heights never seen before. In the Tang Dynasty, tea is going to finally begin to go down market. Rather than remain a drink for the haves, it will now be easily accessible to the have-nots. And though tea had always been treated and handled like a commodity, now it starts to become much fancier and refined stuff. And this required all kinds of teaware, tools, and utensils designed specifically for tea. Tea became more refined and fancy in the tongue. It had been adopted both by Buddhists and scholars and served as a muse and a medium to further enjoy la dolce vita. In Chinese history... Tang poets are particularly revered and remembered for the great heights they brought their craft. Many great poems were dedicated to tea, and we'll look at one later. Hey, if you want to go uh, check out the uh, China History Podcast, you'll 
find a pretty halfway decent six-part series on the history of Chinese poetry. I humbly recommend that. The reputation of tea became particularly well-known in the regions bordering Tang, China. That was in Tibet, Qinghai, and Xinjiang. These people couldn't live without it. Not only was it a beverage that was essential to their daily happiness and enjoyment, it was even more essential for the health benefits it conveyed to people who lived in places so inhospitable, growing enough vegetables to sustain a community was out of the question. The demand beyond China's borders was quite great. And to facilitate the transport of tea to the roof of the world and up to the northwest of China into Xinjiang and Mongolia, routes were created where caravans of men and horses traversed west and north, bringing mostly Chinese tea to the daily lives of the Himalayan people. These routes became known as the Cha Ma Gu Dao, the ancient tea horse road. And during the Tang, tea would henceforth be called Cha. Something this special needed to be rebranded with its own character. And as I mentioned in uh, part one, the Chinese character for Cha was the same as the character Tu, but with a single horizontal stroke removed. The perfection of this character Cha is obvious to etymologists. The top portion of the character Cha has a grass radical. Then there's a ren, a person in the middle, and then a tree below. Three elements, a person in between grass and a tree. The harmony between humans and nature, represented in the character cha. Along with the Buddhism that spread regionally during the Sui and Tang, came tea and Chinese tea culture. The people of Korea and Japan studied everything that Chinese tea and tea culture had to offer. Then each of those two unique and exquisite places did that thing that they each did to unite it with their own culture. The Tang era was the time when tea also arrived in Korea and Japan. In the last episode, tribute teas, or gongcha, were mentioned. These were teas considered special and extraordinary in their uniqueness and flavor. And the finest tasting leaves and buds of the most prized teas, the cream of the harvest, the earliest buds plucked before the Qingming festival in early April, these were reserved solely for the emperor. Everything that was harvested after that was for everyone else. The number of tribute teas in the Tang grew, and some of them are still around today. Let's take a look at how tea makers in the Tang dynasty made their tea. They picked their tea leaves early in the morning, preferably when the dew was still moist on the leaf. The leaves would be boiled in a pot to prevent oxidation and to preserve the green color, but at the same time get rid of the grassy smell. The boiled leaves would then be put into a kind of mortar, and they'd be ground down to break them down a bit and force that tea sap to be released to the surface. Then the tea was put in any number of molds and was patted down to get it into a certain shape. After it was molded, they would just pop it in the oven to seal in the freshness. This is how they made those tea bricks. And these bricks were very convenient to transport, no matter to the lower reaches of the Yangtze River or over the mountains to Tibet. If the tea was going to Tibet, Qinghai, Xinjiang, or Mongolia, it was known as biancha, or border tea. Tea that was sold to the border regions. The quality standards were, as I just said, much lower than what was demanded inside China. 
Let's talk more about why tea was so critical to these Tibetan, Qiang, and other peoples rimming China. As I said, the mountains of the Himalayas wasn't a good climate to plant gardens or engage in agriculture. The Tibetan diet had always been reliant mostly on meat, yaks, and goats. This mostly meat diet had always exposed them to any number of health problems related to nutrition. Now, you wouldn't expect that a beverage like tea is filled with so many nutrients. Drinking it like they did, with butter, salt, and sometimes other additives, was like popping vitamins. Tea has vitamins C, D, K, and E. It has fluoride, manganese, potassium, chromium, calcium, magnesium, iron, copper, zinc, and other nutrients. The mineral content has a lot to do with the water you're using, too. And there's more fluoride in your tea than in the water supply piped into your residence. There's also carotene, B1, B2, B6, and folic acid. Tea doesn't have everything and doesn't contain 100% of the minimum daily requirements, but in the case of the Tibetans and these other border peoples, five to six cups of tea a day gave them about 75% of what was required. It was many times better than nothing. I'm sure everyone has seen or heard of these medical studies that claim tea prevents cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. There are weight loss teas touted all over the place. Claims are made on TV, in the markets, magazines, and in the health food world, and all over the internet, in this world of health products. Some teas are said to help lower cholesterol, some aid in digestion. I don't want to get too deep into this aspect of tea, but I'm sure many of you are aware that this market segment does exist. I guess the most important aspect of tea that's always pointed to as the most important health benefit concerns flavonoids. These antioxidants are said to be particularly helpful in fighting cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and clogged arteries by attacking what's known as free radicals inside your body that might trigger a cancer problem. Free radicals are also known to cause aging and heart disease as well. Now, of the six classes of tea, green, yellow, white, black, oolong, and puar, each one has their own particular merits as far as what studies have found. The different teas have different polyphenol counts. The polyphenols are the antioxidants that neutralize free radicals and whose amazing merits are splashed all over these health food drink labels, and fruit drinks. If you can't keep all the marketing straight, tea, or white and green tea in particular, are praised as antioxidants. There are studies that claim green tea lowers total cholesterol and raises HDL cholesterol, a.k.a. the good one, and others swear by green tea as a preventative against bladder, breast, ovarian, colorectal, esophageal, lung, pancreatic, prostate, skin, and stomach cancers, and also as an aid in preventing Crohn's disease and diabetes. As I said, the antioxidants in tea are called polyphenols or natural phenols. The polyphenols in tea are classified as catechins. You'll see these words in all kinds of ads and packaging on everything from tea leaves, tea extracts, and other dietary supplements. Green tea contains six primary catechin compounds called EGCG. EGCG is the most studied of the polyphenols. 
white tea has the highest level of antioxidants and an amino acid discovered in 1949 called theanine. A lot of people take theanine supplements to prevent diseases like Alzheimer's and hypertension. In short, tea is healthy for you, but arguments abound about how to reliably and accurately measure the exact benefits to your health and longevity. Anyway, back to the history. Once this great market was built in Tibet, transport links had to be established. This was easier said than done, because once you start heading due west from Chengdu towards Tibet, it doesn't take long before you hit the Himalayas. Back in the days of Zhang Qian and the earliest years of the Silk Road and the Han Dynasty, it took a bit of time to figure out the right mountain passes to traverse and where and what time of year to cross certain rivers and how to safely get from point A to point B. For the ancient T-horse route, the same held true. It took some time before these traders and caravan leaders got it down to a system. It was a treacherous journey across the most rugged terrain in all of China. 5,000-meter mountain passes, valleys, and gorges. Some rivers were impassable and required cables to be run from side to side, and all people, cargo, and animals, too, had to be ziplined across. Part of these caravan routes through the mountains were called Shuyu the road of mice and birds. This meant the paths that were carved into the mountainsides were so narrow as they wound through these gorges, there was only sufficient room for either a mouse or a bird to walk safely. This whole border trade industry was promoted by the government. China had tea, and the Tibetans and other border peoples had horses. The Tang and later the Song government could never get enough horses in their stables. Tang Taizong had really pushed the limits of the empire out as far as they had ever been. In order to patrol an empire this big, you needed a lot of horses. West of China, they had an ample supply and were only too anxious to trade them for tea. The government started building their own tea plantations, especially around Sichuan. They got into the business, too. As the story goes, it was in the year 641 that tea first came calling on the high-altitude world of the Tibetans. This is the story of Princess Wencheng, Wencheng Gongju. She was Tang Taizong's niece. In 641, her uncle, the emperor, married her off to the Tibetan king, Songtsan Gampo. This was done in the interests of bringing peace and stability between China and Tibet. These two went at it for almost the entirety of the Tang Dynasty. And though it's hard to believe today in 2021, but the Tibetan Empire, which lasted 618 to 842, really beat up on the Tang. Princess Wencheng is credited with introducing Buddhism to Tibet, as well as all kinds of other practical wisdom from China that had beneficial applications to the Tibetans. She also brought tea with her from Sichuan. And the Tibetans really took to it in a big way. So much so that Tibet became a a whole new market for China's tea producers. And again, because the Tibetans mixed the tea with butter and spices, the demands on tea quality and subtleness of flavor weren't as important. The tea makers in Sichuan and Yunnan just churned these cakes and bricks out. There's an old story, eh, who knows how much of this is true, when Princess Wencheng was getting acclimated to the life in Lhasa, 
She would drink half a cup of the local milk at breakfast and chase that down with some tea to get rid of the flavor. Then she tried mixing the milk with the tea and added some clarified butter and pine nuts. And then you guessed it, she invented suyo cha, or the famous Tibetan yak butter tea. And from this beginning, with the union of Wencheng Gongju to one of the greatest kings in Tibetan history, Songtsan Gampo, not only did peace prevail between China and Tibet, the two civilizations joined together in their common embrace of Buddhism and the incorporation of tea into their daily life. And when I say allowed peace to prevail, well, it didn't actually always prevail. And to facilitate the transport of tea to Tibet and to secure as many horses as possible, the Cha Ma Gu Dao was created, the ancient tea horse road. In some ways, this was similar to the Silk Road far to the north. It was a trade route. There were two main ones. One led from Kunming to Tibet, and the other linked Chengdu straight west to Tibet. The Kunming route was called the Southern Route, and the product was known as Southern Route Tea. It passed through the tea marketplace of Pu'er, where it ended up being molded into bricks and sold to the Tibetans to the west. As I said already, this tea was known as Bien Cha, or border tea. Let me read from English explorer William Moorcroft. He trekked from the mouth of the Ganges to Tibet in 1812, and he had a fascinating observation about how the local Tibetans had their tea. Quote, At breakfast, each person drinks about five to ten cups, each containing about one-third of a pint. And when the last half is finished, he mixes with the remainder enough barley meal to bring it to the consistency of a paste. This is done to soak up and render edible a greasy accumulation of froth, which is blown aside when the preceding cups are being drunk. The preparation of breakfast tea for, say, ten persons involves boiling an ounce of brick tea and a light quantity of soda in a quart of water for an hour or so, or until the leaves of the tea have been sufficiently steeped. The liquid then is strained and mixed with ten quarts of boiling water in which an ounce and a half of fossil salt has been dissolved. The whole is put into a narrow, cylindrical churn, along with some butter, and is churned until it becomes a smooth, oily brown liquid, something like chocolate. In this form, it is transferred to a teapot for immediate use. At midday meal, those who can afford it take tea again with wheaten cakes, accompanied by some paste of wheat flour, butter, and sugar, served hot. End quote. From Chengdu and the towns outside of Chengdu, like Qionglai, Ya'an, Wenchuan, and Lushan, tea was packed up and sent out west to Tibet and northwest to Qinghai and Gansu. Once it got as far as Gansu, you were hooked up with the Silk Road, and your stuff could go anywhere in the known world where a Central Asian or Mongol trader might take it. Now, this brick tea although it was the accepted standard in Tang days, by the Song dynasty, well, they're going to be turning their nose up at this stuff. In fact, interestingly enough, after the Song, the only ones besides the Tibetans who were sticking with brick tea were the Russians. Okay, Lu Yu is at stage left right now, looking at his watch, and as far as tea is concerned, he's really the big star of the Tang dynasty, and we've talked about everything except him. So... Next episode, we're going to take a look at his life, his great work, the Cha Jing, the classic of tea, and the legacy that would last all the way into our present day.
I haven't walked into a single tea shop or tea person's home or office who didn't have at least a small Luyu figurine on the shelf. That's all for part four. So be sure to come back next time for that Luyu episode. Until then, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles in the Golden State. Please consider coming back for more in two weeks' time. You could do a lot worse than this niche program that's fighting its way up the pop charts. I'll be waiting for you here, the kettle boiling, for another delectable episode of the Tea History Podcast. 